Now, I have to say I was surprised this morning out of all the comments I got about me wearing a suit. It takes a lot to get me in a suit. But I just want to say I'm not wearing a suit this morning because I'm trying to be all hoity-toity. I'm the preacher man. Matt called it my preacher outfit. Uh, but I'm doing it this morning in honor of our dear sister Juanita, who went to go be with the Lord last month. I've been at Kenwood for eight years, and Miss Juanita will often come up to me and say, Mike, I'm just so upset that the young men in our congregation don't dress up like they used to back in the old days. It just breaks my heart. And then she would go on to say, Mike, you look really good in a suit. Which would be Miss Juanita's way of saying, Mike, you should really wear a suit to church. So in honor of Miss Juanita, I have donned the suit. And we love her and we will miss her. Let's pray. Father, I am humbled to be your servant this morning. Lord, I just pray that you would speak through your word and sanctify us in truth, for your word is truth. And through your word... Christ will be shown. And in his name we pray. Amen. So this past month, I've had the privilege of reading the life story of Catherine and Jay Wolf. And their life story hits really close to home to Mariah and I, especially Mariah, because she graduated from Sanford University with both Catherine and Jay. And I'm honored to say that Catherine sent Mariah a copy of her book, Hope Hills, and wrote a kind inscription inside. After graduating from college, and getting married, Catherine and Jay moved to Malibu, California, where Catherine hoped to further her acting and modeling career, and Jay enrolled in Pepperdine Law School. And for a few years, things seemed to be going great. Catherine's career was really starting to take off. The Wolves were actually blessed to welcome a baby boy into their lives, and Jay was just a few short weeks from graduating law school. For all intents and purposes, life was good. And then in April of 2008, tragedy would strike. On this particular day in April, Catherine began to suffer through these headaches, and they became very severe throughout the day, but she persevered through them because she was a task-oriented person, and she had to get her list done. But as she was cooking dinner that night, she said that the headaches seemed to be getting worse, and the room began to spin, and she called out to Jay, who was in the next room. And Jay ran in, only to find Catherine going in and out of consciousness, uncontrollable vomiting, and he called EMS. And this went on until EMS arrived, and Jay said it just seemed like it took a lifetime for them to get there. And then EMS got there, treated Catherine, did what they could do for her, and loaded her in the ambulance, and Jay would follow them to the hospital. And he said it just seemed so unreal that all this was happening to them. And when they got to the hospital, Jay learned that they'd have to continue on to her farther hospital, because that hospital wasn't equipped to treat Catherine. You see, Catherine had experienced a massive brainstem stroke. And both time and correct treatment were of the essence. So they had to go to her father's hospital. And when they got there and the doctors were able to look at Catherine, the doctor came out in the waiting room where Jay was with his family, and they told him the words that every husband would dread to hear, that it didn't look like Catherine would survive the required surgery. But by God's grace, Catherine did survive the stroke, though her life would never be the same. After a long and hard recovery, the stroke would leave this young, beautiful mother at the age of 26 with facial paralysis, deafness, double vision, and the loss of fine motor skills. And I'd like to read just a few pages out of Hope Hills that really communicate both Catherine's grief and hope through these hard times. Catherine says, I found myself wondering, has God made a mistake? Should I have died? I'm caught between life and death. I can't even walk or eat or play with my child. 
I've gone from making lasagna in my little kitchen to being fed all meals through a tube in my stomach. I've gone from going on play dates with girlfriends to attending courses on disability adjustment. I used the power to walk, I used to power walk the hills of Pepperdine. Now I have two physical therapists and a walker while I agonize to walk one step. I've gone from wearing a cute outfit every day to wearing adult diapers and hospital gowns. I want my old life back. But every day that old life seemed further and further away. If I weren't here anymore, things would be better for everyone. Jay could marry a normal, able-bodied woman. James could have a normal mommy. Everyone could stop putting life on holding. Stop trying to get me well. It isn't working. It isn't ever going to work. Jay and James and our sweet families don't deserve this suffering. I should be in heaven right now. Then at least everyone's pain would eventually come to an end. And then suddenly, before those thoughts had even landed in my head and heart, I felt a deep awakening of the word of God which I had known since I was a little girl. I could almost hear the rapid-fire succession of truth of the scriptures like a dispatch from God himself. Catherine, you are not a mistake. I don't make mistakes. I know better than you know. I am God and you are not. Remember that you were fearfully and wonderfully made in your mother's womb and that when the AVM formed in your brain, I put it there. There is a purpose in all of this. Just wait, you'll see. There is no replacing you. Jay could never, ever marry a woman as amazing as you. James could never have a mommy like you. Think about what this will mean for his life. Mommy's stroke will always be part of his story. That is a gift to him. It will inform him in his life. Let him consider it pure joy as he grows. All of this will teach him the ways beyond anything you could say or do. Trust me, I am working out everything for your good. Don't doubt this truth because you are in darkness now. What is, true in, what is true in the light is true in the dark. I know you can't fight this. That doesn't matter. All you have to do is be still and let me fight for you. I will complete the good work I began in you. When I gave you new life, I will carry it out onto completion. Believe that. My nature is to redeem and restore and strengthen. This terrible season will come to an end. You will suffer for a little while, and then I will carry you out of this. You will see my goodness in the land of the living. Lean into this hope. Let it teach you how special you are. Most people will never go through this kind of hell on earth. I have chosen you. Live a life worthy of this special calling you have received. This morning's text will be found in Philippians 1, 12 through 18. As you're turning there this morning, I just want to state the obvious. We all will or have experienced suffering in our life. And Jerry Bridges said, if you haven't experienced suffering, cheer up because it's on its way. And the Apostle Peter tells us not to be surprised when fiery trials do come. So the question is not if, but when we suffer. In a former sermon of Denny's on the book of Job, I love what he said. The question with suffering is not why does bad things happen to good people, but how do good people respond when bad things happen? And how we respond to suffering is going to depend on our outlook on life. If you allow your circumstances to define your life, then you'll be like Catherine in that first paragraph. You'll doubt that God has anything good in this, and you won't be able to survive the trials. You'll lose hope. However, if like Catherine, you come to understand that your purpose in life is not the acquiring of things or your earthly comforts. Rather, it's that you are to be a vessel in which God will use to promote his goodness and his glory. Then you will be able to survive those trials. 
And we're going to see this morning that the Apostle Paul was all too familiar with suffering. But what allowed Paul to endure those sufferings was that he understood God's calling in his life. From the very beginning of his ministry, recall Jesus sent Ananias to Paul. And he said, Ananias, tell him that he's going to take my gospel to the Gentiles and their kings. And then what? Is that he's going to have to suffer for my namesake. We read earlier, a servant is not above his master. Paul will have to suffer like the Messiah suffered. And this was Paul's purpose. And this morning we will see that Paul could rejoice through his sufferings because the gospel was advancing not only through his ministry, but the ministry of others. So let's look at that first part there in Philippians 1, verses 12 through 14. And we will see that Paul could rejoice in his ministry because it was going through what he was suffering. Verse 12, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me. One of the main reasons Paul is writing the book of Philippians is because he had caught word from this man Epaphroditus, who was the church's messenger, that the church back in Philippi was a little discouraged to hear of Paul's situation. And Paul doesn't spend much time just kind of rehashing what all that, that has happened to him. Believe me, if I was writing Philippians, it'd be a lot longer than four chapters. I'd spend four chapters just telling them all the things that God had brought me through, all the bad stuff that's happened to me, but God was so merciful to deliver me from. All the stuff that happened to Paul, and all he says, what has happened to me? It's because Paul's concern in this text is not about his suffering, but the outcome. But let me briefly explain everything that Paul's been through, why the church would, the church would be so discouraged. First of all, to begin, Paul is writing this letter from a jail cell. He is under house arrest in Rome. And how he had gotten to Rome wasn't the best experience either. So just let me briefly summarize Acts 21 through 28. Paul, the great missionary, completed three missionary journeys. He's planted all these churches around the area. He's actually planted one on a new continent, Europe. That's where the Church of Philippi came from. Paul was on a roll. And then he said, well, I'm going to take a little rest, a little R&R, &R, and go to Jerusalem. I'm going to visit James, Jesus' brother, and then I'm going to go in the temple. And Paul spent seven days in the temple teaching on purification because that's how Paul vacations, right? And he's in the temple, and all of a sudden this mob comes in and pulls Paul out. And they start to commence to beating Paul to death because of his work to the Gentiles. And then this Roman soldier was walking by, and they, he sees this going on, and he pulls Paul from the mob, and Paul goes to tell him, hey, they're beating me, but I'm a Roman soldier, so you better guard me. What they're doing is illegal. So the centurion takes Paul to the Roman council, and Paul tells them what's going on, and they said, well, you know what? You're going to have to tell your case down in Caesarea to Felix, the governor. So they arrest Paul, and they take Paul down to Caesarea, which is about an hour south, and they have to guard Paul, the text says, with 500 soldiers. It's because that same mob that ran in the temple to attack Paul, they had sworn themselves to fasting until Paul was dead. It was off with his head at all costs. So they protected Paul, and they arrested him, took him down to Caesarea, where he would spend two years in jail. Then he'd finally get his time in front of Felix and a king, and they wanted to let Paul go. They said, we, we find no guilt in you, but you made the mistake. You pleaded to Caesar in Rome, so off to Rome you go. And this is where the fun really begins for Paul. After two years in prison, after being beaten, Paul loads his ship and he sets off for Rome where there's rough seas. And it gets, it's a three-hour tour, right? It gets a little rough. The ship wrecks. Paul jumps overboard along with some other prisoners. They swim to an island where they spend three months abandoned. And just when he thought he was down, he gets bit by a viper. Right? But he survives, and then another ship comes. They load the prisoners up, and they take Paul onto Rome. 
where Paul would be chained to a guard and taken into a house arrest where he would spend two more years. For all intents and purposes, Paul is on death row. Now you can see why the Philippi church was a little discouraged about Paul's situation because Paul was notorious for going into these towns preaching the gospel, but he would do so by preaching at the synagogue. He would get beaten, chased out. He'd wipe himself off, go right back to the Gentiles, preach the gospel, plant a church, wash, rinse, repeat. He always seemed to bounce up, but Paul wasn't bouncing back this time. Two years in jail. Now he's in Rome facing most surely a, a death sentence. And they thought with the ending of Paul would come the end of the advancement of the gospel. But Paul says, wait a second, not so fast. If, if you think that everything that's happened to me is going to slow down God's work, then you are wrong. Don't be discouraged because you don't think God is at work because he is at work through me. Paul tells them, when you think about my suffering, you should be encouraged. And here's why. Look at the rest of the verse. That what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Contrary to belief, though Paul was in chains, the gospel was most certainly not. It's like what Paul tells Timothy in a future letter. Though I may be chained, the word of God is never bound. And again, Paul doesn't spend the time rehashing all those bad things that we talked about. Rather, he focuses on the results. All of his sufferings are of a service to him. How? They were advancing the gospel. And that word advance there means progress. It means to move something forward. So you think about during this time, if an army wanted to advance, they would send a crew out to kind of blaze the trail in the forest so the army could march through. It's like what A.T. Robertson, a former Greek scholar and a good old Kentucky boy, said. It was like Daniel Boone who blazed a trail through the West so civilization could endure. Paul was in prison. He was bound. But the word of God was still progressing. It was going into foreign territories, into foreign hearts. It couldn't be slowed down. And can you imagine how astonished the Philippian church would have been when they heard this good news? And if that wasn't amazing enough, just look how the gospel was advancing. Look at verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Acts 28, 16 says, And when he came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldiers that guarded him. From the time Paul got off the boat until he's eventually released, two years of imprisonment, Paul is chained to a guard. And these soldiers were a member of the palace guard known as the Praetorian Guard. These were the best of the best. These were the elite. They had the high honor of protecting Caesar and his interest. They're like those soldiers at the tomb of the unknown soldier in D.C. who guard the tomb. Those squared away, locked jaw soldiers who walk back and forth day and night protecting the tomb. I don't know if you knew this or not, but that's not their first post. It's an honor that they, that they are there protecting that tomb because they've earned the right to be there through their service to their country. Those men are the elite soldiers of the 3rd Infantry. And the same goes for these Praetorian guards. Their job was to protect Caesar and his interests. They could only get close to Caesar because they have proven themselves true to Caesar's cause. And these guys were the real deal. They would have been very intimidating. And here Paul is, this man from Back Hill, Palestine, and he's chained to a new guard every four hours for 24 hours a day. And we know these soldiers must have had an effect on Paul. Remember in Ephesians, Paul writes that letter. He writes that letter from the very same jail cell. And he uses the imagery, he tells the Christians to put on their whole armor of God. 
And he talks about the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and just goes on to describe what this soldier and his gear. Well, this imagery was clear to Paul because he sees it night and day. He wakes up, he goes to sleep. He goes to the bathroom. He is chained to a guard. But we also see here that Paul must have had an effect on these soldiers too because the text says, so it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard that my imprisonment was for Christ. Now, I like the NIV translation of this. It really gives you the imagery of everything Paul's suffering through. It says, so that it has become known that I am in chains for Christ. Now, Paul wasn't the type of prisoner who said, I didn't do it. You got the wrong guy. I'm not guilty, right? Paul would have a chance to plead his case in court. He wasn't concerned about that. All that Paul was concerned about was to preach the gospel, and he did that through his chains. And again, Acts 28 gives us a good insight into what the guards would have experienced. Now, remember, they're chained to Paul day and night. Everything Paul says, they would hear. Listen to Acts 28.30. This is Paul in prison. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, boldness and without hindrance. That's what they heard. Proclaiming the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And they would listen to Paul preach this gospel day in and day out. Outside of the road to Emmaus where Jesus gave that great biblical theology class to those two guys, this had to be one of the best courses ever, right? And they would sit here and listen to it. But you have to ask yourself when it comes to a Roman guard whose allegiance is to Caesar and Paul whose allegiance is to Christ, who's the real soldier? Or uh, who's the real criminal? Who's, who's the one under arrest? Who's the real prisoner? These soldiers weren't lining up to go to Jerusalem to hear Paul preach the gospel. So what does God do? Through prison, through his arrest, he sends Paul to these prisoners and he chains them to them night and day and they hear the gospel preached every day. And the glorious part was that this didn't have an ill effect or the soldiers didn't reject it because the text says that it had become known throughout the whole imperial guard. Now, these guards made up a small percentage of Caesar's army, but there were about 9,000 of these soldiers. And Paul doesn't mean that all 9,000 heard the gospel from Paul. Rather, those who were chained to Paul are talking about it amongst the other guards and their experience with this Palestinian Jew from jail block 6. This text doesn't just tell us how many became believers, but using the word advance or progress... In regards to the gospel, you have to think that a good number of these soldiers were being saved. And even if not, the gospel was still going forward in a foreign territory, which is a good reminder for us. It's our job to preach the gospel. It's God's job to choose the soil. And I quickly just want to point a few things out that I just see in the text that would have possibly been of interest to these decorated soldiers that would make them want to talk about Paul and his gospel. First, I think Paul would have gained their respect by the type of prisoner he was. He didn't wallow in self-pity or try to work his way out of his sufferings. He would later tell the church to do all things without grumbling. This past week, and I found myself about to lose my cool because I had to sit in derby traffic. I probably wasn't the only one here who did that, right? But Paul, here he is in prison, and he doesn't make a peep. The great Julius Caesar himself, and you could just imagine how much these guards would look up to Julius Caesar 
He said, it is easier to find men who will volunteer to die than to find those who are willing to endure pain with patience. And they would see this very same quality in Paul, and it would gain their respect. Secondly, Paul was loyal to his cause. The guards came to understand all too well that Paul was in chains because of his loyalty to Christ. They knew all about loyalty at all costs, wouldn't they? And lastly, just think how Paul could relate, Paul's message could relate to those guards. Here's Philippians 2, 6 through 9, which gives us a good overview of Paul's gospel. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted upon him and gave him the name that above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And what do you have right there? You have a leader who fights for his people. You have a leader who sacrifices his life for his people. You have total victory and submission. So it seems clear why these soldiers could relate to Paul. It's a good reminder to us that we do not have a weak gospel. The Moorhearts are going to have an ordination service in a couple weeks, but I just want to let you know, our gospel is nothing to be ashamed of as you take that gospel onto foreign land. And know this, learn this from Paul. It's not enough that you go to China and preach the gospel, but that you live out the gospel, that our conduct can affect how people receive your message. And that goes for all of us, whether in China or in the south end of Louisville. And the gospel wasn't just going forward through the guard, but the text here says, and to all the rest. At the end of Philippians, we get a good idea just how far this gospel had gone. Paul ends this letter by saying, the brothers who are with me greet you, and all the saints greet you. And here it is, especially those of Caesar's household. What? Can you imagine the reaction to this? If they're on Twitter, they would put out one of those memes where a guy's shaking his head. What? What? Caesar's household? Here we were discouraged, thinking the ministry was done. Paul was dead. The gospel would end. But the gospel had penetrated the very house of Caesar himself. Now, we don't know if that is in reference to Caesar's relatives or his servants, which it most likely was his servants. But nonetheless, the gospel was in Caesar's house. And his daily devotion awake my heart. I highly recommend it. J. Sidlow Baxter tells the story of an elderly lady from Essex he had once met. And she told him that she had prayed for years that God would give her a special work to do for Christ, some form of ministry. And eventually there came a grievous trial in her life, which prevented her from doing anything. At first she was rebellious, but eventually she accepted the trial as her heavenly master's will. And it was there that it led to one of her life's most loveliest discoveries that her suffering was a trial with a ministry in it. She said grace, love, and peace began to flood through her soul. And through her suffering, she became radiant and was a testimony to the many needy hearts around her. And hundreds, they said, were blessed by her ministry and testimony, her sympathy. And I love this part. She told Mr. Baxter, I have prayed that the God would give me something to do but he has chosen to give me something to bear. What about you? 
What are you bearing this morning? And let me be clear, Paul does not rejoice in his sufferings. He doesn't rejoice in the fact that he's a prisoner and he's being beaten, he's in jail. He's rejoicing what God is doing through those sufferings. Perhaps God is using your current struggles in life to pull you closer into him so you can feel the affection of a loving father, so your heart can be renewed and awakened, that you know that he is all you need. Or perhaps the Lord knows your faith is strong and you're ready for that trial. And he wants to use your faith so that you can be a witness not only to his mercies, but to show those in your life what matters most to you. It's not the earthly comforts. It's not the acquiring of things. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ and its proclamation. Paul ends chapter 1 by telling the Philippians to live a life worthy of the gospel. And that root word for worthy is, comes from the word axis. And you just think how the earth spins on its axis, right? The earth is balanced. So Paul says to live a balanced life is to live a worthy life. What keeps Paul from tipping one way or another? It's that his center, his main focus is Jesus. And it doesn't matter if there's much joy on one side for Paul or much suffering on the other side for Paul. He can stand firm in the faith because he's grounded in Jesus. Therefore, he can live a life worthy of the gospel. If you're visiting this morning and you're not a believer, I'm not a psychic, but I'm going to tell you about your life, okay? It's, it's, it's easy. All those counseling sessions, I can narrow it down to this. When your circumstances are good, life is good. When your circumstances are bad, life is, well, not so good. And the days pass and they bring new circumstances, shifting the balance of your life from good to bad. And so these are the days of our lives. What you need is not another self-help book. They, they come and they go. What you need to know that life is fading and so, so are all of its troubles. What you need is the word of God because the word of God never fades. And here's why. Here's what we believe. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And in that flesh, the word lived a perfect life, yet was tried, crucified, and killed. Yet on the third day, the word arose, and the word was given the name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and every tongue confess, that he, that Jesus is Lord. Not your life, not your family, not your circumstances, Jesus is Lord. And I assure you, nothing will fill your heart with joy like that word can, like Jesus can. And please know, suffering does not end if you become a Christian. We're not promising you a way out of suffering. If you're visiting this morning, you're probably looking around and say, we have some pretty presentable people here. You may have even said how friendly they were. But I guarantee you that underneath those smiles and those presentable people, all the dress, the suit, that we have people here who are really suffering. We have people here with broken marriages. We have people here with broken relationships. We have people here who have lost their jobs or can't find one. We have people who have lost children. People who have lost parents and loved ones. But they came in this morning with a smile on their face and raised their hands to the risen God because he is their joy. And I speak for the elders when we say that we are encouraged by your faith daily. 
Let's look at our last part of our verses this morning. In our next few verses, we see that Paul could also rejoice in his suffering because it wasn't only going through Paul's ministry, but the ministry of the church. And Paul wanted to share this with the Philippian church so they would be encouraged that with or without Paul, the gospel was still going forward. Look at verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's suffering had become a source of encouragement to the church in Rome. And real quickly here, I just have to point out a fact that verse 14 here is actually an answered prayer of Paul's. At the time of Paul's imprisonment, that he's writing this letter to Philippi, the church in Rome, which is where he's at, had already received the book of Romans. And I just want to read a prayer of Paul's in the first chapter of Romans. Listen here. That without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So Paul prays three things there in Romans 1. That he can get to Rome, that his faith would encourage the church in Rome, and the church in Rome's faith would encourage him. And we see all three of these things answered here in Philippians this morning. Paul got to Rome, though it was through prison, through being in jail, Paul got to Rome. And it was through that his sufferings encourages the church. And then they encourage Paul because of their faith. And do you not think that Paul would relate at these two? Paul said, I do, because Paul said, I prayed for you without ceasing. This church is always on his mind. Now he's in Rome, and those people back in Acts 28, that those visitors we heard that came to see Paul in jail, most likely several of them were from this church. And they took everything they saw and heard from Paul, and they reported it back to the members. And this lit a fire of encouragement underneath the church. And they, like Paul, were inspired to go out into the streets of Rome and preach the gospel. Because they understood, like Paul, they too may experience the chains. But through Paul's witness, they finally realized that God works through those chains. But notice how he said this took encouragement. It was encouragement that led them to preach the gospel with all boldness and without fear. So we should take that as encouragement this morning. When you share the gospel with a loved one, it takes boldness and fearlessness, doesn't it? Sharing the gospel may be one of the most intimidating things we do as Christians. We assume talk about anything, sports or politics, rather than our faith. Just this past week, Mariah and I went to Charleston, and one of the more fun things we did, we took a ghost tour. And I tell you, what made it fun were the tour guides. They were all into this stuff, man. They, they just ate it up. And their excitement got you excited about it, right? They had a passion for it. Now, I didn't see any ghost, and I really don't buy into the whole thing, but hey, I'm not going to knock their passion. Shouldn't we be that way with our faith? I mean, after all, thousands saw the risen Lord. This book testifies to it, and if you are a Christian, you have experienced the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. You know the truth, and you need to be bold and fearless and testify to the truth when God gives you those opportunities. And Paul's point here is that you may need some encouragement along the way to do that. Rome already had Romans right? They knew that salvation was through faith alone, through Christ alone. They got that. What they needed was a little shove to take that letter out into the streets. And the shove Paul gave them was that the chains are worth it. Just think of that person you're dying to share the gospel with. 
your neighbor, your loved one? Do you not think that little second of fear and intimidation is worth their eternal joy? If the advancement of the gospel is at the center of your life, then your main concern is not about consequences. It's just that the gospel is proclaimed and it is moving forward. Notice, though, how Paul said that most of the brothers, not all Christians were confident in the Lord. Some were more confident in themselves. Look at verse 15 through 17. It says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Instead of preaching the word with boldness and confidence, there were some in the church who were preaching Christ from envy and rivalry. So there's this group of guys, perhaps evangelists in the church, maybe even elders, we don't know. They were jealous of the fame that Paul had acquired over his three missionary journeys, that everybody was talking about this apostle Paul and how great he was. And they sought to to get that fame for themselves. So all of you aspiring pastors, and we have many this morning, take this to heart. You never come to this pulpit trying to outdo the other pastors. So everybody will say how great of a preacher you are. And most definitely don't ever enter the ministry with the thoughts of being the next celebrity pastor. Just know that Paul wasn't a good preacher because he was a great spokesman. He says so in 2 Corinthians. He said, I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I have the knowledge. And I think he hints to that here when he said that he was put there to defend the gospel. Paul was convincing and could defend the gospel because he knew the Bible. He could answer the questions. So please, aspire to know the Bible like Paul and not to preach like Piper. And I guarantee you the Lord will bless your ministry. And as we all know, if we leave our envy unchecked, it's going to find its way out. And we see that here. These jealous men and their selfish ambition went so far as to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. And I love Pastor Tommy Nelson, Denton Bible Church, his Greek translation of this text. He basically says, these guys are looking at Paul in prison. You know what they're saying? Nana, nana, boo, boo. Right? Paul, you love to preach the gospel. You love to take it forward. You love to see people saved. And here we are. We're out in the streets. We're preaching the gospel. People are being saved. This has to be killing you. Has to be killing you inside. And you know what? They're going to be talking about us, not about you. And look how Paul responds. Verse 18, what then? What then? Paul gives them a big, so what? So what if I'm out here? That doesn't mean God is not at work. And look at that last part. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. I know this, these weren't false teachers in the church trying to afflict Paul. Paul knows how to attack false teachers, doesn't he? Read the book of Galatians. Dogs. These men were preaching the real gospel and people were being saved, which is evidence that Paul's heart was truly for the advancement of the gospel because he didn't care how God's work went forth, whether it was through his suffering, through the ministry of others, or even with false motives. All Paul cared about was that Christ was proclaimed. And Paul would have good reason to rejoice. Forty years after this, 100 A.D., Did you know there would be over one million Christians in Rome alone? And that's through some of the gruesomest persecution that the church had experienced. 300 years after that, the Roman Empire, the official religion would become Christianity thanks to a Christian Roman emperor, Constantine. 
And we trace it all the way back this morning to one joyful prisoner, right? What a difference the gospel could make through one person. What a difference the gospel could make through you. Last year marked the 60th anniversary of the death of Jim Elliott and four other missionaries in Ecuador. And I don't have the time to talk about all the amazing stories related to Jim Elliott and his mission to Ecuador, but just to say that Jim and his four friends were speared to death on the side of a riverbank by Akua Indians as they tried to bring the gospel to them. And it was later found out that Jim and his friends were actually armed at the time, but they refused to draw their weapons, which would have eternal consequences. What I want to share this morning about Jim Elliott comes from his diary. Before Jim was an overseas missionary, he was a stateside evangelist. And he could often be found at a train station preaching the gospel to anyone who would listen. And here's his entry from January 1948. No fruit yet. Why is it I'm so unproductive? I can't recall leading more than one or two into the kingdom. Surely this is not the manifestation of the power of the resurrection. I feel as Rachel, give me children or else I die. So from this entry, you can really feel just how passionate Jim was about the proclamation of the gospel and his desire to see people saved. And the Lord would answer Jim's prayers. He would give him children, spiritual children, that is. God would manifest his power through Jim. However, Jim wouldn't be alive to see it. Exactly eight years, eight year later, eight years later, Jim would be killed by those same Indians, those Akua Indians. But through his death, God would bring about the remarkable belief and repentance of those very same Indians that killed Jim and his friends through the ministry of Elizabeth, his wife, and others. Not only that, can you imagine how many missionaries have been inspired and encouraged by both Jim's story and that quote most of us are familiar with? He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose, which is, by the way, the book of Philippians in a nutshell. Can you imagine how many lives were and are being saved through those missionaries today? And I don't doubt for one minute given Jim's desire to see just one or two saved at a train station, that he would forfeit his future sufferings if it meant through his sacrifice possibly hundreds of thousands would be saved. Hundreds of thousands would hear the gospel. If you are suffering this morning, I hope you have been encouraged by God's word that what you are experiencing is not pointless, it's not in vain, that God does have a purpose, and that's to show his power through your weakness. But I hear your thoughts. Right? Some of you are thinking, I want to be like Paul. I want to be like Jim Elliott. Who doesn't? But man, I love enough courage just to talk to my neighbor about Christ. Man, I want to take my pain. I want to give it to all to God, his glory. But how do they do that? You're thinking, Mike, it's like you just told me everything about basketball. Then you rolled a ball on the court and you said, go be like Michael Jordan. That would be pointless if you didn't have the skills or the ability to go along with the knowledge. So let me share with you Paul's so-called skill, Paul's secret to success. And there's just one. Paul wasn't a successful missionary just because he was an apostle. Paul shares with the Philippians his secret to success, and then he later tells them to duplicate it, which means it's our secret too. It's our skill. Despite his sufferings, Paul did one thing that kept him moving forward through the suffering, and it's found in Philippians 3.13, and I'll read it to you. There's just one thing. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to lies ahead. Understand this. 
There was no forward in the Christian life without the forgetting of the past. You see, Paul's success didn't come from him preaching the gospel to others, but preaching the gospel to himself. We forget that, don't we? Paul's not slowed down by any guilt or shame in his life. Rather, he takes the fact that he was guilty, yet Christ set him free, and that creates a passion in Paul to take the gospel to the end of the world. We need that passion. The gospel is just not some doorway you walk through to begin your Christian life. The gospel needs to be your daily reminder that you are in Christ and you are therefore accepted and loved by God. No matter what your struggles are right now, don't allow your struggles in life to rob you of one ounce of joy. It's going to slow you down. And I love what Rosier Butterfield just said recently. She said, if you are in Christ, sin is never who you are. And know this. Satan loves it when you wrestle with your sin. Because when you're wrestling with your sin, you know what you're not doing? You're not out there saving sinners. He loves to get you tied up with guilt and shame. Let that guilt and shame go. Fill it with the passion that comes from the liberating truth of the gospel and go out into the world and get to work. Catherine and Jay Wolf just announced some exciting news on their website. Sony Pictures has bought the right to the book Hope Hills, and they're going to produce a movie portraying their life story. And there's no doubt in my mind that Sony will do a great job of portraying the great bonds of marriage between Catherine and Jay. And there's no doubt in my mind that Sony's going to do a great job of portraying how one person can overcome such difficult odds through the help of family and friends. But Lord willing, and most importantly, Pray that Sony will help Catherine and Jay continue to advance their primary mission, and that's to be missionaries of hope by communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ through the lens of their story. Let's pray. Father, it is my prayer this morning that the saints of Kenwood were encouraged like the saints of Rome through the sufferings of your servant Paul that we will all grow in our faith. So like Paul, we can say with confidence, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we can cry out with the psalmist that though we may sow and weep, we will go out with songs of joy. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.